welcome to episode 121 of Positive Regression, a motorsports analytics podcast. I'm Alan Kavana, joined as always by David Smith. On this episode, it's time to say goodbye. Yes, that time of year once again where we offer requiems and fixes to the teams no longer in the playoffs. Our way of saying so long to those four teams. That, plus of course, our big Las Vegas preview. But first, as always, a quick look back on maybe the greatest driver of the number 21 car, David Pearson. Uh, David, you wrote that line, maybe the greatest driver of the 21 car. Maybe. We'll get to that in a second. But (laughs) yeah, David, the silver fox, David Pearson, coming straight out of Spartanburg, South Carolina, made a name for himself at places like Greenfield Pickens, uh, Hickory Speedway, 105 Premier Series victories, three titles. But David, for everything David Pearson did, I think he may most be known for what he didn't do or what could have been. Because as I'm sure you will discuss in his entire career, David, how many times did he compete in every race in a season? Little trivia. Uh, Three. Unbelievable how small of a number that is. David Pearson? uh, Yeah, you're right. There's no maybe about it. Uh, Turns out he was pretty good. He uh, he could drive a race car. And as you alluded to, it was a different era. Only a handful of drivers ran the full Cup Series season in order to compete for the points championship. Uh, a lot of drivers cherry picked uh, tracks that they were good at uh, or they just hunted for purse money. And that was David Pearson in his initial Cup Series foray. He actually won 13 Cup races before ever becoming a full-time title-contending cup driver. His first full season in cup was 1966, and he won the championship. He would go on to run two more full seasons in 1968 and 1969, championship and championship. (laughs) That was it. He went three for three in years when he actually contended and focused on winning a title. Uh, And in those three years specifically, he won 42 of 152 races. Naturally, he'd end up uh, winning the 105 uh, races that you mentioned. 43 of those came behind the wheel of the Wood Brothers number 21. Alan, he was popularly nicknamed the Silver Fox, but the Wood Brothers referred to him as the King of Cool. Uh, Said Lynn Wood, there could be an argument about who is the greatest at driving a race car, but there's no question about who was the coolest under pressure, and that was (laughs) David Pearson by a long shot. Wood points out that uh, David Pearson won uh, the Daytona 500 in 1976. That was the famous race in which he and Richard Petty wrecked each other on the final lap. Uh, They ended up in the infield grass, but Pearson won it. Because he had the wherewithal, the presence of mind to depress the clutch mid-spin as he was spinning, and this kept his engine running. He got back into the gas and drove towards the finish line to take the win in that race. Uh, Another Daytona moment, the 1974 Firecracker 400 at Daytona saw Pearson ceding his lead position to Richard Petty on the final lap in order to secure the most advantageous drafting position, which he then utilized to slingshot past Petty right before the start-finish line. 
that is intelligence. That is just being ballsy. That is making Richard Petty look foolish. That is what David Pearson brought to your team. And the lore surrounding him, Buddy Baker always spoke of this. He once said that Pearson passed him uh, at one race and he looked over at Pearson and Pearson was in the middle of lighting a cigarette. (laughs) Which, to be fair, I think that's a testament to your car at that uh, at that point. If you're pulling stunts like that, so kudos to the Wood Brothers. But David Pearson, um, one of I think probably the five best to ever do it. Leonard Wood put it best, I think, when he said, "With Pearson, if the car wasn't running right, you didn't have to wonder whether it was the driver or the car. If it wasn't fast." you might as well start working on it because it certainly wasn't the driver. He always knew the perfect line to take on the track. And if the setup wasn't running right for that line, he'd figure out the best line to take to fit that setup. But if you were right, you were home free. I had that much confidence in David Pearson. Uh, Can I say I had a similar conversation with Cliff Daniels at Bristol about Kyle Larson and similar comments to what you just said, David. Really? Yes. That is so strange that you bring that up that I just had to bring it up now because just said, look, yeah, if Kyle Larson is the type of driver that can tell you exactly what he needs in a car and go win with it. And if you don't give him the car he needs, he can find it out there on the track. And it's just weird how that echoed. And I, how I heard that a few days ago from Cliff Daniels. Very strange. This sport from day one has been a, a driver centric sport. And as much as we talk about crew chiefs and strategy and engineers and teams making their cars faster, it is a team sport disguised as an individual sport. But it's because that individual in question, the driver, means so much. And if you get a good one, it can unlock all the potential of your race team. And from the sounds of it, David Pearson was one of those uh, one in a million, one in a hundred thousand kind of guys that can transcend the sport, make your team better, uh, pretty much regardless of whatever else you have going on. He was very much that guy. What I like to talk about when I when I think David Pearson is that not that Richard Petty would ever point to himself when you ask who the greatest is, but Richard Petty points to David Pearson, right, as his biggest rival, as the best to ever do it. I trust Richard Petty's opinion when you ask him something like that. Also, David, I, I cannot, will, and will never forget the inaugural class of the NASCAR Hall of Fame. It was an enormous, huge deal. Uh, in Charlotte, obviously, when it opened and they announced that first class, uh, I mean, hundreds, if not thousands of people in this big uh, kind of ballroom space, uh, everybody wondering who the first class would be. David Pearson was there. David Pearson heard he was not in there and promptly walked the hell out of there. <laughs> Back turn, pissed off, even at uh, a ripe uh, older age, if you will. Pissed off at this age that he was not a part of that first class, just to give you a sense of that competitive spirit that was there throughout his entire life. Yeah, and and that's just that's just a bad beat. I mean, you you saw how the first class went down, and it's difficult to argue that um, was he deserving? Absolutely. And you know what? Had he run fuller seasons more frequently, he would have racked up the championships and he would have been in these discussions. These discussions of the best drivers in the sport seem to revolve around Richard Petty, Dale Earnhardt and Jimmy Johnson, because they all hit the magic number of seven championships. 
uh, each individually. David Pearson did not. And because of that, we do allude to the win total sometimes, but we do uh, perhaps incorrectly place him in a tier below those other guys when, in fact, I think he's very much uh, a candidate to be on, if you're doing a Mount Rushmore, he's on the Mount Rushmore of the sport. Excellent. Great way to start episode 121 of Positive Regression, a look back at David Pearson. When your business is starting its championship run, nothing matters more than finding and hiring the best team. With Indeed, you have the power to build a dynasty by hiring more MVPs faster. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer valid through March 31st. If you're hiring, you need Indeed because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applicants that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. No matter how the last game went, anytime you take the field, you got a shot at greatness. Give your team the best shot at winning by recruiting more MVPs with Indeed. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So let's get this episode started. Round one of the Cup Series playoffs is in the books. And David, every year, can't believe it's that time of year already again. But uh, when a round is over, we like to go do our requiems and fixes for the four drivers who have been eliminated. So for the four most recently eliminated playoff teams, we are providing season highlights and um, offering some fixes. And David, you, you're making it a point to point out that the the one fix, the rule in this game, is that we cannot just say they have to get faster. I guess you can explain that. Uh, it may, may be something of a challenge for me to really dig deep and offer some fixes, but simply saying get faster, that, that's not enough for this podcast. So we're going to dive in and, and we'll start, David. I'll let you start with Kurt Busch. Uh, tell us about Kurt Busch's year and something that team can fix. Kurt Busch ranked 12th in 550 horsepower peer while ranking 11th in 750 horsepower peer. So seemingly he had the capability to be a well-rounded driver, but his Chip Ganassi team went all in seemingly from the get-go on 550, evident from their sixth place average median lap ranking. The same team ranked 17th on 750 horsepower tracks. Furthermore, Bush was more influential as a passer on 750 than on 550. The 750 ovals served as the only track type this season on which he was a positive surplus passer, meaning that CGR didn't really lean into what Bush was doing best. But despite that, he did manage to get most of the cars when they were at their fastest. He had the fastest car at Homestead, the fastest car in the second Atlanta race, and the second fastest car in the first Atlanta race, all three of those mile and a half tracks. So it wasn't as if the team was purely incompetent. They were just not complete, really. Not well-rounded, uh, certainly not well-rounded enough to fit 
what may be a, ro- a well-rounded driver. Uh, he, of course, won that second Atlanta race, which earned him this playoff spot. And in the playoffs, he faced a round exclusively comprised of 750 tracks. This was always going to be an uphill battle. But the good news is that the second time around at Darlington and Richmond, respectively, uh, the cars he was supplied were significantly faster than they were earlier in the year. Uh, He had the second fastest car at Darlington, for instance. But unfortunately, a blown tire ended his night prematurely at Richmond. And last weekend at Bristol, uh, where the Cup Series hadn't visited previously this season, CGR just laid an egg. Both of its teams, uh, really, but Kurt Busch finished 19th after a limp performance, uh, we'll call it. His average running position was 21st on the night, and that ended his bid for a second championship. The fix here, Alan, is that Kurt Busch is heading to 23-11 racing next season. He's in his uh, early to mid 40s. I don't know the answer to this uh, or many examples, really. So I'm going to challenge our listeners to do some homework. Uh, Have any drivers in the winter of their careers, age 40 or over, we'll call it, moved to a team that did not previously exist? Hmm. Has that ever happened? And if it has, how did it go? Uh, And I'll leave that to the listeners. But 2311 lacks a competitive identity. They are truly a blank slate. And the fix for Kurt Busch, because he's going over there, Ganassi will cease to exist, is for his new team to lean in to his strengths and shape what they do around what he does well. And what he does well is be Kurt Busch. Uh, As a matter of fact, and you can look this up, Alan, no other driver does a better job at being Kurt Busch than Kurt Busch. So (laughs) what does that consist of? (laughs) It means, yeah, it means putting up a fight, uh, doing essentially what needs to be done, whether it is some shithousery on a restart, whether it is finding a consistent rhythm of passing that uh, statistically the car should not be capable of and taking advantage of precise shots like what CGR took at Atlanta. Kurt is a pretty studied guy when it comes to knowing what he wants his car to do at certain tracks. Well, just do that. Why why do anything else? Don't hijack a good performance and turn it into a Hail Mary for a playoff berth. Just give Kurt the car that he wants and go out and race because Here's the thing. I'm going to say this now. This 2311 racing team, their chances of winning a championship next year are slim to none. And it is most likely that Kurt Busch is not going to win another championship. But that does not mean he and this team can't impact a season in an impressive way. They can be great, but they can decide what that excellence looks like. I think they should compete for results and not necessarily playoff spots. Show up every weekend to win or place or to have a good time because a championship isn't realistic, but a good vibes Kurt is a very dangerous Kurt. 
And that could go a long way. It could also help turn 2311 into a feisty program, which again would be adopting and conforming to the identity of their new driver. And you, we've had this discussion, I, you and I, before on this podcast about what Kurt Busch brings to a team because I do feel like he's that driver that that elevates each team that he goes to. I mean, I, I think the numbers and results show it. And I think he, even if you're just hiring him for what's between his ears, uh, you're going to get your money's worth over at 2311. I think he can do that for a, another team. I mean, he elevated the one team, the 78. The 51 back in the day. I mean, all those things. Maybe not the two car, but he still won some races. But um, I, I, I look forward to what he can do with, with 2311 in helping elevate a, a young team with a veteran presence. And again, the knowledge and skill that is uh, that comes out of Kurt Busch. I just want to see 2311 not conform to what maybe Joe Gibbs Racing is doing, maybe what Toyota is doing at large. Focus on what Kurt does well and just follow him, follow suit, because that could make things really interesting. Uh, Again, there are only going to be three to four organizations next year able to compete for a championship legitimately. Then they don't need to do the same things those organizations are doing to go out and get a championship winning talent and a race winning talent as recently as this year like Kurt Busch, that's certainly a message that you're sending saying that you want to be better than you already are, but you also don't want to fail in taking advantage of what that driver does and what he brings to the table. No, you want to build a team around that in order to maximize what it is your team is able to do. Because if you don't, then this is a wasted signing. And I would really hate to see a talent like Kurt Busch wasted. All right, Kurt Busch, we'll see you next year. Next up, David, uh, Tyler Reddick with Richard Childress Racing. 13 top 10s this year, uh, far outpacing where he was in 2020 as a rookie, uh, where he only had nine all year. Again, he's got 10, uh, 13 already so far with some races to go. But he is out of the playoffs after first round finishes of 18th, 15th, and 12th. Um, David, baseline, I feel we did see an improvement uh, from Tyler Reddick this year, which is what you want out of a young driver. Uh, I got to give him a lot of credit for having a low crash frequency, actually one of the best in the series, tied with drivers like Kyle Larson and Kevin Harvick. Uh, A lot of credit to Randall Burnett, great retention percentage during green flag pit cycles. That will certainly help uh, a driver in a team that isn't necessarily the fastest. So there were certainly some positives for Tyler Reddick this season, as I keep saying about the improvement that you would want out of a young driver. But uh, the fix, David. Uh, Plenty of room to improve for him on some restarts. One of the worst among playoff drivers when it comes to positions lost on restarts this year. His overall percentage is right around 50%, meaning every time they drop the green flag, there's a coin flips chance he stays where he is or he goes backwards. Uh, That has to improve, right? And that should improve his consistency and finishes a few spots. So uh, we saw stretches, unfortunately, this year where, you know, three top tens in a row, but then two finishes in the 20s, Uh, say an 11th, but then an 18th or a 19th. Look, at the very least, he's got to keep up with the speed of his car, which is about 13th on the charts this season. I think if he can do that next year, just be more consistent and it starts with the restarts. 
that, that should help his finishing position. I think his season improves next year and he can go a little farther in the playoffs. Perfectly said, because those short runs are moments of vulnerability for every driver, really. But for Tyler Reddick, he's a liability uh, to his team. I mean, as long as his restarting efforts are, like you said, a coin toss, that's not good because for the rest of the series, that's not the case. They're able to make hay on short runs. And for RCR specifically, um, we know that that is uh, an intelligent brain trust over there. They're looking to game whatever they can during yellows, potentially taking risks on tires. And in order to maximize that, to tap into what they're seeing that some teams aren't, you need the driver to restart well, because if not, you're just going to go backwards. The good news is Tyler seems to be completely aware of this. He, uh, he's He has spoken about his uh, restarting liability on some uh, press availabilities this season, and he's aware that it's something that he has to work towards. He's uh, utilizing SMT data to understand what other drivers are doing well relative to him. Um, so it could be something that we see from him. Um, whereas we've talked about how long run passing for Joey Logano is, is the next and, and final frontier to making him, um, just an impenetrable race car driver. I think the next step in Tyler Reddick's improvement is the short runs right now. He's not in the game on short runs and any kind of improvement, even the smallest bit on restarts can make him uh, more formidable and make him one step closer uh, to becoming a Cup Series race winner. All right, good stuff there for the young man. And uh, again, uh, good for a second-year driver, but can be better. So we shall move on. We will see you later, Tyler Reddick. Next up, Michael McDowell, Front Row Motorsports. David, you've written extensively on him. Of course, he started the season uh, with the Daytona 500 win, which put him in the playoffs. And when you're a playoff driver, you're you're sort of thought as uh, or looked at as differently because you are one of the top 16. So the fact that we're talking about him out in the first round, maybe not much of a surprise, but uh, give us uh, your overall thoughts on his season because there was a lot to look at. And I know you've uh, reported on it uh, extensively. Yeah. So I'm going to break this into two sections, uh, what they did well, and then what they didn't do well at all. Uh, But firstly, what they did well, Michael McDowell won the Daytona 500. That happened. And in hindsight, it was something we always should have considered because McDowell traditionally has a knack for mitigating risk in drafting races, hanging around until the end, and then capitalizing on whatever falls in his lap. Also, and this is something that Drew Blickensdurfer shared with me, Daytona and Talladega are the only two tracks on which uh, Bob Jenkins, front row's owner, expects to compete for wins, expects to compete for wins. And thus, front row puts more energy into the preparation for these races than probably most big teams do. Uh, Penske, for instance, Travis Geisler, their competition director, admitted their focus on 750 tracks last season took away from focus on preparation for Daytona and Talladega. Uh, they still perform well, but they're hardly conducting any new research and development. Well, that's not the case for front row. And because of those efforts, they are Daytona 500 champions. So well done. 
Uh, but the good parts of their year extended far past Daytona. Uh, McDowell ranked 10th in Pier at 550 tracks. He finished 6th at Homestead and 13th at Kansas, uh, and that's punching above his weight in terms of speed. Front row ranked 25th fastest on 550 tracks. And some of these results were fueled by Blickens Durfer's strategy, uh, at times pragmatic, but he threw in the occasional uh, uh, risky call. And as we record, no crew chief has supplied his driver more positions during green flag pit cycles over the last two years hmm. than Blickens Durfer. So this has been something that's been building. And when I interviewed him, he said, yes, this is all part of a design even McDowell's contribution to green flag pit cycles, uh, which is getting on and off pit road quickly. Blickensturfer estimated that McDowell saves them a half second per pit cycle relative to his surrounding competition. Uh, recently, that came back to bite McDowell with uh, the two speeding penalties under green at Richmond, if you'll recall. That was just an example of him hustling the car and it going bad. <laughs> just, But he was trying to do what he always does. Now the bad part. Uh, McDowell's negative 0.743 peer on 750 horsepower tracks is the worst in the Cup Series. Front row motorsports in general is significantly slower at this track type. Uh, so it comes as no surprise that their playoff run ended after three consecutive races on 750 horsepower tracks that was started by a wreck at Darlington. Uh, the worst news is that the sport seems to be heading in the direction of 750 horsepower and those kinds of tracks. And as of right now, this team isn't anywhere close to being ready for that. My fix, Alan, uh, from the sounds of it, Front row might contract this offseason. It might become a Toyota program as well. Uh, if that is the case, it opens up new possibilities for what could happen. Uh, they should, if that does happen, go harder on the big tracks, in my opinion, especially if there's a difference in horsepower, because that is what would best take advantage of Drew Blickensdurfer's strengths as a crew chief and Michael McDowell's talents. McDowell is a passer and restarter, frankly, does not cut the muster. I do not view him as any kind of threat on 750 uh, or tracks uh, filling that rules package. So the most likely path to success comes on the bigger tracks where they appear to have a handle on what they do and the teams that they actively compete against. And you have to argue within their running whereabouts, they get the best results by executing to their style. And that philosophy should not change, uh, even if there is improvement to be had with a possible manufacturer switch. Then, you know, if that does happen, the ceiling for performance gets uh, a little higher by kind of sticking to what they already do well. All right. Uh, when I think of Michael McDowell, I mean, I just think another one of those drivers who has been around a long time, right? And uh, on a mid-level team, if you will, but he is getting older, right? He is approaching that age uh, uh, close to his, what should be his statistical peak, right? He he is in his mid-30s and only getting older, in which uh, our numbers say should get a little better each time. Do you see improvement 
in Michael McDowell. Uh, I just throw the name AJ Allmendinger out there, right? A guy with a lot of cup experience who uh, seems to have gotten better. And we are seeing something of a peak, obviously, from AJ Allmendinger. Is it possible Michael McDowell is getting better at all? And we could see more improvement and combine that with a, a different manufacturer, maybe faster cars, maybe something more than what we've seen before. It's not only possible, it's already happened. I think we've seen that with his performance the last two years, really. Go back and check the results. Uh, Just a litany of top 20 finishes on 550 horsepower tracks. But I think there's one more step that's realistic that can be had. um, And that's pointing to McDowell's background in road racing. Mm -hmm. That's where his career originated in, in, in kart racing. But if you look at his record of results at places like Sonoma and Watkins Glen and and even more recently the Roval it it's not as good as you think it would be and I, it feels as if there is a disconnect on what he should be doing and what he's actually doing if he marches forward into the future and becomes a driver that can punch above his weight on road courses which seemingly he should if he does that then yes, we're going to see uh, even more improved performance for both him and this front row team. All right, good stuff. Uh, a lot of questions over for a front front row and where it exists, if it exists, how many cars, what series, what manufacturer, what driver. So a uh, lot, to, a lot of questions to be answered over there. I'm looking forward to that one. But Michael McDowell, you are still the Daytona 500 champion. But we say goodbye at least for this year. Finally, David, we'll move on to Eric Almarola, number 10 Ford for Stuart Haas Racing. Eric Almarola out of the playoffs after finishes of 16th, 14th, and 18th in that first round. Uh, honestly, I expected more out of him for this round, given that they were all 750 horsepower tracks. Um, so I, I was a little disappointed there out of the performance of the 10 team. But look, the fact that he was in the playoffs, David, it kind of masks just how bad his year was and that cannot be overlooked. Uh, Of course though, he got the win in New Hampshire. I was there on pit road. It was badass. It was well-earned. He drove up there and took it in a well-performing car put together by the team. Can't take any of that away, but that one win, it came in what has to be the worst year of Almirola's career, given what you would think the expectations were at a team like Stuart Haas Racing, right? Aside from that victory, David, he had two, just two other top tens all year. So that win masked a lot. And the fact that we we're even talking about him, again, is because of the playoff system and how, you know, how victories are rewarded with a playoff spot because overall it was a terrible year uh, for Eric Almirola. So my fix... Uh, in so many ways, improve at 550 horsepower tracks. David, his best finish at a 550 track this season, 17th at Michigan. That was his only top 20 of the year at a 550 horsepower track. Um, I'm also breaking your rule because he's got to get faster. <laughs> like you can't be the 19th place car in median speed and and think that's at all acceptable at a team like Stuart Haas Racing. So um you know, and even with a car with 19th place speed, it, there were a lot of finishes that didn't live up to that. And I know there was some crashing, maybe some bad luck, if you want to call it that. But overall, it was uh, a pretty bad year for Eric Almirola. And uh, he could have saved it a little bit with better 750 performances, taking advantage of what was a small strength this year, but it just didn't happen in the first round of the playoffs. 
It is tough. You're right. It was disappointing knowing what we know of SHR 750 horsepower speed. We were both quite bullish on that going into the playoffs. We saw Kevin Harvick compete for a win at Bristol uh, and nearly pulled it off. Amarola, yeah, disappointing um, across those three races, especially given how strong he was in New Hampshire and at some of these playoff tracks that he visited earlier in the year, um, certainly results that demonstrated he was far more capable than what he showed. Um, I agree with your fix. Uh, even though you're breaking the rule, the, this, whole, <laughs> this program as a whole needs to really buckle down on what is happening with the next gen car because one rules change really set them back at the start of the season. They lost a lot of their pizzazz. They frankly got a late start on optimizing for 750 horsepower tracks. They did it and they did a good job of it, but they, they got a late start on it. Uh, and I think that that showed at times. So yeah, we're here and um, they did make the playoffs. So well done for that. But uh, I'm in agreement with you. This number 10 team is a bit of a mess and there's actually a lot that could be improved upon. Eric Almarula, we bid you adieu. Uh, and that concludes the first round of Requiems and Fixes. We'll be back in a few weeks with uh, after the next round uh, to see who can survive to the round of eight and who says goodbye. And that next round, of course, begins this weekend in Las Vegas. And David, we've been there before once already this season, uh, back in March. So this will be the sixth Las Vegas race using the 550 horsepower package. I love this just because we have some data points. Like we have a good amount of data points, right? To to really kind of key in uh, on some trends, maybe uh, at least on what's looking good, what's bad. So what matters? What has been the key to success? What can we tell from these first six races at Las Vegas that uh, what can we learn about the keys to success at this track? Uh, we can learn the faults of having many data points because sometimes they just <laughs> tell you many things. Uh, and that's kind of the case. In in the five races at Las Vegas under this specific rules package, we've seen a little of everything. Uh, races relatively caution-free uh, and heavy on long runs. We've seen races uh, with plenty of cautions ending with late restarts. We've seen wild restarts. We've seen green flag pit cycles break towards those Attempting to long pit. That's how Kurt Busch won the playoff race last year. And we've seen a race uh, earlier this year, just cater to the fastest car, uh, which was Kyle Larson. So as much as we have talked about uh, with, with a few different tracks, just about setting up a car to take advantage of track characteristics, I think this is very much a track where you just set up for your strength and game plan towards that as your path to success. Because... The race in the spring, we did, we saw a lot. We saw short runs absolutely flip fields at times. Uh, I counted there were four instances of a 10 position loss on a restart from inside the top 14. That kind of thing isn't an aberration. That's just a thing that happens. So there's a lot of volatility. Uh, what we also saw long runs uh, and namely Kyle Larson's long run speed come to the surface and truly matter. And that is what won it for Kyle Larson. So the thing that I enjoy about this track, and especially in these most recent two races on this specific tire compound, is that whatever the scenario is, it seems to magnify 
and at times exaggerate those who perform best in those scenarios. Kyle Larson, earlier this year, he was the speed guy, and he still is. Joey Logano, in his 2020 win, was the clean air short run guy. Kurt Busch won uh, last year after he held off a lot of guys on successive restarts to end that race. All of those situations felt exclusively tailored to those specific drivers, and that is what this track offers, and, and that's pretty neat. All right. You want to be the guy. You want to be some kind of guy, right? Yeah. As long as you're the winning guy or the winning driver. Um, This race begins a wild playoff round that also includes Talladega and the Roval. So out of the remaining playoff teams, would you look at anybody kind of ill-suited for this round or maybe even this race in particular, right? Who's at a disadvantage going into these three races if you could sum anything up? I'm curious to hear if you uh, have anybody for this, but I'm personally worried about Kevin Harvick. He ranks third right now in the Cup Series in Pier, but he faces a very real possibility of not making it out of this round. He started on the pole at Las Vegas in the spring race, and he failed to lead a lap. That's that, that's something. He despises road courses. Uh, which does not bode well for the Roval. And I know you predicted that he would win Talladega, mm-hmm. but the odds are that he won't. So this weekend specifically needs to be one similar to what we saw from him in his second place finish earlier this year at Kansas, in which he turned in his best adjusted pass efficiency of the entire season. And the problem is that I don't know if that is something that can be duplicated, uh, especially given the stakes, because there is, for this race, additional pressure to maximize your day because Talladega is looming and it guarantees nothing. And as much as uh, that we, we think of the Roval as some kind of wild card race, it's really the Chase Elliott Invitational, if we're being honest, and and the good road course racers, Martin Truex, William Byron at times, uh, the cream sort of rises to the top of that place. And if you're not one of those guys, it's going to provide you a lot of the trouble. And Kevin Harvick isn't one of those guys. All right. I'm looking toward, only because it, you put so much pressure on this first race, uh, the poor 550 performers have been, what, Joey Logano? Uh, I think Christopher Bell yeah. has a negative peer yes. on 550 tracks this year. Now, both those drivers I just named, they had top 10s at Las Vegas earlier this year. But if we're going big picture 550, uh, that's something to worry about going in, putting a lot of pressure on yourself in this one race. Because if you don't get it done or if you have a poor finish in Las Vegas, again, you have the Roval and then you have Talladega. Right, Christopher Bell has won won at the Daytona Road Course, so maybe there's something there. But then there's always the kind of wild card at Talladega. David Logano suggested we were at Bristol last weekend, and I don't want to uh, you know blow Nate Ryan or Dustin Long's article if they're writing about this this week. But they were asking, and Logano suggested you know maybe out of the three races, Las Vegas is the biggest wild card only because of the potential restarts at the end. Right, four wide crazy, you know, close pack racing, if you will, that, that maybe it's Las Vegas that provides the, the biggest question of this round. Because uh, as you said, the, the road course can play itself out. We know how Talladega works, but uh, Las Vegas can go bad very quickly. And uh, I worry about the, the drivers who have not performed at 550 tracks getting off to a bad start. Because as these 
rounds go uh, further in, right? I mean, 12th place isn't going to cut it, right? Coming back from a 16th place finish in the first race is going to be tough the rest of the the two races. So uh, to dig yourself a hole early is tough in this round of eight, round of 12. That is a good thought that Logano had. And and I do tend to agree with that because when, when you're talking about both Bell and Logano, if Bell's perceived out in this round is the Roval, and granted he didn't perform well at the Roval last year, that that's that's expecting a lot. And with Logano too, if his out is Talladega, that's the worst track to have as an out, right? So that that's ooh, that that's a lot of pressure. And he can pull it off, but that's a lot of pressure for that one race. So yeah, this is a weekend that has to go well for all of these guys. And it, it's fair to say an especially bad performance. Uh, a blown tire and a and a smack of the wall early in this one, that might be your round. Uh, and and I and I don't think that I'm exaggerating when I say that 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 spells trouble. Um, so you're right, a lot at stake. I, I think at, at the most part, you want to come away with stage points and a finish and maximize this day to the best of your ability because the next two weeks uh, are not a given. All right, so let's uh that's you know underperformers. Let's pick some winners, David. I'll let you go first. Who's winning Las Vegas? My pick is Kyle Larson. Oh and <laughs> it, it's not totally because he's the most recent winner, but his passing stats, uh his his restarting ability, the consistency of his speed, and even the green flag pit cycle strength of this team makes them solid picks across all the scenarios that we've discussed. Um, if let's take Joey Logano at his word, if Las Vegas races are indeed wild cards and how they break, uh, how they're shaped, then I want a team that can do a little bit of everything very well. And right now, inarguably that is Kyle Larson and this number five team. Yeah, I, I can't argue with that. It'd be foolish to argue if I'm actually trying to pick a winner, especially in a place like Las Vegas, where you can make your legal bets on uh, an actual winner. Uh, it'd be foolish to bet against Kyle Larson, fastest at 550, uh, the best 550 driver, uh, or just best overall this season. So uh, it would be foolish to bet against Kyle Larson. So uh, that one seemed a little easy, David. Let's go with contrarian picks, either Maybe an upset win, someone you're not looking at, or someone might punch above their weight and surprise us this weekend. Who you got? I'm picking Brad Keselowski. Nice. Uh, he had the second fastest car in the spring race, trailing only Kyle Larson. He netted out 17 positions specifically off of restarts in that race. That is one of the three highest single race totals of any driver of the last five years. Wow. On the whole, uh, for this season, Keselowski has been faster and more productive on 550. I do expect him to be very good at Talladega. I do not expect him to do well at all on the <laughs> Roval. So as we've talked about, this is a swing race, uh, certainly for him. He needs to be positioned well going into Talladega. And for whatever reason, Las Vegas is the mile and a half track that sort of incorporates the things that Keselowski is doing best right now. All right. I'm going with, 
I almost went with a Penske car, but I'm going, I'm not venturing too far away from Hendrick. I'm sorry, David. I'm going with Willie B, William Byron. Look, for one reason, his restartability, one of the best in terms of positions gained this year. So he's second to Larson in terms of uh, the 550 speed. So if I take a very fast race car, and then I take William Byron's ability to get some spots on restarts. If this thing comes down to a short run and he gets out front, I mean, it's the kind of track where the leader has such an advantage. Uh, if I have to pick a kind of a Hail Mary contrarian pick, I'm pretty safe, I feel, with William Byron. So as long as he can get out front, I think he can defend and, and get a victory should he be in position to do it. So uh, I know I'm picking a Hendrick car, but maybe not everyone looking at Hen- Willie B for the win, but I think he can do it. I think that's a driver that can actually have a pretty good round, uh, just based on Hendrick Motorsports speed uh, on the 550 tracks, Las Vegas included, uh, Talladega and uh, Byron on the Roval. Do not sleep on him at that particular racetrack, uh, especially when his driver coach helped design it. Uh, so that's uh, that's an interesting pick um, for a contrarian choice. Yeah, I, I, I like him a lot. <laughs> Uh, certainly coming off of a strong performance that was needed at Bristol. Good stuff. Another big weekend in Sin City, episode 121 of Positive Regression. Don't forget we are available on all major podcast platforms, no matter your device. We Our entire back catalog of episodes is available for free at posregpod.com. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. That stuff helps so much in spread the word about this podcast. We, of course, notice, and it is so appreciated. If you have any questions, we would love to hear them. We did a whole episode about your questions last week, and it was awesome. So reach out to us on Twitter at PosregPod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, you're always working hard. What do you got this week? This week for NBC Sports, I am writing on Chase Elliott's championship chances. That's a name that we didn't mention uh, in this episode, but... If we're going to see a playoff push uh, from the defending Cup Series champion, we're likely to see its beginnings in this very round. And on Sunday, my Las Vegas race preview, uh, that will dive into how the three organizations in the playoffs, plus Kevin Harvick, could attack this round based on their strengths and weaknesses. So check both of those out at nascar.nbcsports.com. Good stuff there. And make sure you follow my social channels for uh, everything kind of racing related. Uh, Of course, uh, at Alan Kavana, uh, if you're listening to this on Thursday morning, thank you for being a subscriber. And make sure you check out my Twitter feed because the latest edition of Quick Hits will be out. That previews the weekend, a video I do for Speed Sport, not just NASCAR, but the entire racing world. There's great late model stuff going on this weekend at Martinsville. There's all sorts of dirt stuff at Eldora. Uh, IndyCar will crown a champion. We got it all detailed in one video. It's pretty cool. I hope you check that out. Let me know how that is. Friday afternoons, make sure you watch Fantasy Live on NASCAR.com. Myself and Amy Long helping you with that fantasy team. Again, the playoffs bring new uh, allocation in terms of starts. So I've been I've been doing pretty good lately with my fantasy team, David. So make sure you watch that video. I, my advice has been worth it. It has been worth your time the last few weeks at least. So I promise you there. So make sure you watch that. And then, uh, yeah, just keep it tuned to, uh, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, any, uh, anything and everything I do. I uh, love to keep in touch and keep the conversation going. So for David Smith, I'm Alan Kavana. This has been episode 121 of Positive Regression. We'll see you next week.
Samira Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about Black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, Black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.